Everybody have a good holiday? Yeah. You know, um, the holidays are like this kind of this uh, time of comparing because sometimes the holidays are amazing and they are so fulfilling and they're so wonderful. And then sometimes they're this time of contrast where uh, you know it should be amazing and you want it to be amazing, but then you don't experience that because of various reasons. And this year, I have, uh, I have known people in both places, and I've been in both places. It's been interesting, and I've been praying for many of you. I know some of us are dealing with grief and loss and sickness and sorrow and all those sorts of things, and uh, we've been lifting you up and, and praying for you. And then many of us have been rejoicing and celebrating and, and just enjoying the Lord and His goodness. Uh, and uh, we've been praying for you and been thanking the Lord for you as well. So um, you're loved, and the elders and I, we, we lift you up often. You are written on our hearts in so many ways. And so uh, we just want you to know that, that uh, God has a place for you, and he is working on your behalf in ways that you probably can't even imagine at this point in time. Uh, well, on our way into our message today, let's just take a moment to thank God for today and what he's going to do in our hearts. Uh, Father, we just come before you right now, uh, praising you and thanking you. As we reflect on Christmas Day, uh, we just can't help but know that wonder and awe and love and goodness and mercy and everything you are came to us 2,000 years ago, give or take, on Christmas Day because of your love and your desire for us to know you. And so, Father, we're pressing in right now because we're seeking after you. We want to know you, and we thank you that that is your will for us, to know you and to have everlasting life through knowing Jesus and through knowing Jesus, knowing you. Father, we pray for revival in our own hearts. We pray for revival in this place and in this church family. We pray for revival on this peninsula, and we pray, God, that this would be for your glory, that you would purify any motives in us that long for revival for some other ancillary potential thing, God, because the truth is, is our hearts hunger for your glory incredibly deeply. And so please, Father, increase that hunger and feed us today with a revelation of you, you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's uh, so an author named Paul Miller. I don't know Paul, but Paul wrote a book called Love Walked Among Us, and he begins teaching seminars, because what he does, he writes books and he teaches seminars, helping people to know Jesus more. What a great calling in life, right? Uh, but Paul begins teaching his seminars in this way. He brings uh, like a whiteboard up with one of those giant post-it charts. Have you ever seen one of those? And he writes on the chart this quote, I do nothing on my own. I can only do what I see my dad doing. And he asks for an analysis from the audience. And he says, in the age of Oprah and Dr. Phil, the armchair psychologist answers come. Can you just see him? I mean, think about that phrase. If you met somebody at the grocery store and they were just following a guy and you were watching and then in the checkout line, you're like, what's the deal? And, and it's an adult man and he just says this to you. He says, I can't do anything on my own. I can only do what I see my dad doing. What would you think about that guy at Jack's? Genuinely, you'd kind of think, where are the men with the big net and the jacket with the long arms, right? You'd think there's something going wrong here because adults do what? They do what they want to do. That is the purpose of being an adult, right? Remember when you were a kid? When I get big, I want to do what I want to do. And then you got big. And do you know what you spend your time thinking about doing? What you want to do. It's the nature of being an adult. And that's okay. You need to have that autonomy. 
he says that people call out and they say things like, he sounds weak. He sounds almost helpless. Doesn't he have a mind of his own? If he's an adult, he needs a little separation from his dad. Has this person been to see a counselor? This is not healthy. This sounds very childlike. I think he's codependent. He should have his own identity and not rely on his father for an identity. Miller writes, after I've let the hook go deep, which you guys already saw this through this right away. You're a smart group of people. He says, I tell them that Jesus said those words. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can, only, uh, he can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the, fa- the father does, the son does also. And then he says, by myself, I can do nothing. He says this in John 5.19 and John 5.30. Yeah, I think it's remarkable that Jesus says this sort of radical thing. You know, J- Jesus came to reveal God to us. And he revealed God to us in oh so many ways. And when you read the Gospels, you see this over and over again. Jesus comes and he does miraculous things through God's power, through submission to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you can do these things also. But Jesus also revealed God to us in his intimacy and closeness with the Father. Now it's really crazy because there's two levels of following Jesus in the Gospels. First of all, there's just crowds that show up and Jesus says things. And it says in each Gospel that Jesus speaks in parables so that people would be confused. Would you hire that pastor? On his resume, he says, listen, everybody says that sermons need to be clear, but Jesus says that sermons should be unclear. And so my sermons are barely perceptible to the average person. Unless if you're really seeking after God, you're not going to get it. Would we call that guy here? I don't think we would. Should we? Probably not. This is Jesus' ministry. My ministry is to make Jesus clear, right? That's my job. That's actually your job too, by the way, is to translate Jesus into the world around you through the way you live. More on that later, though. So Jesus confused people through parables. But then there was a group of people who pressed in, and they wouldn't just fall away because they were confused. They were humble, and they would come to Jesus, and they would say, I don't really know what that means, Jesus. What, what were you talking about with that parable, with the soil and the seeds and the, the birds and the, the, the weeds and the, the sun? What, what were you getting at? And, and Jesus said, don't you understand anything? If you don't understand this basic parable, how will you understand anything that I do? So he didn't just say, if you can't understand this parable, you won't understand my teaching. He's literally saying, if this lesson that I'm teaching you confuses you, you won't understand anything about me. Isn't that wild? Now, Paul later tells us that the unspiritual person cannot understand spiritual things. You see, we need to become spiritually mature to understand the truth of the Bible. And that's kind of crazy because at the same time, I know that the Bible can teach anybody but it's talking about the depth of who the Lord is and the depth of his revelation. And so Jesus spoke in this way to confuse, but he also spoke in ways to reveal and draw people in who were ready to be drawn in, who were ready to be called into depth. And not just depth, but that depth comes with so much good, but that depth comes with challenge. Anybody know how to swim here? I don't want to... 
I can throw you a line if you don't, uh, literally. So uh, when you were learning to swim, uh, your goal was to not go under the water, right? You needed to get up out of the water. But when you were learning to swim, it was like easier to swim under the water a little bit, right? Because then you just kind of pop up and get a breath and then you do like the doggy paddle thing and almost drown, blah, blah, blah. Well, then eventually when you could swim, you decided you were going to go deep. But you learned that it was more challenging to go deep than it was to stay on the surface. You had to get a big breath. And then if you got to a really deep pool, like have you ever swum to the bottom of a, a 15, a 20, or a 30-foot pool before? How does that feel on your body as you go deep? I'm going to die, man! It's like pushing in on your ears, and you can feel it, and like the pressure is building, and your sinuses feel like they're expanding, and so your head is being squeezed and expanding at the same time, and it's so delightful that everybody does it all the time, right? Like every pool you go to has a 30-foot deep end because everybody's like, I just want to get deep, man. That's where I want to be. And sometimes when Jesus calls us into depth, we, we feel that. We feel the exhilaration, but we also feel this sense of pressure and heaviness and we can feel like we're going to die and in a way it's because we we need to die to ourselves jesus says so that we can be alive to him and so jesus invites his disciples to know who he is and how he operates he lets them see his dna and this moment that we just read about is jesus giving his disciples the core of who he is jesus says elsewhere i and the father are one. He says, I can do nothing aside from what I see my Father doing. I can say nothing aside from what I see my Father speaking. You know what Jesus is showing us? Jesus is showing us that he lives in absolute surrender. Jesus is showing us that the key to his life on earth was complete surrender to the will of the Father, to the character of the Father, to the words of the Father, to the desires of the Father. And so today, we are talking about surrender. And we're actually going to talk about surrender for the next three or four weeks after this as well. I haven't figured out where we're going to land. But as we start 2024, the Lord is calling us as a church family into a place of surrender. Now, if you're wise, you're starting to think about the cost of surrender. Because what does surrender mean? giving up. And what does it mean giving up? Everything. Everything. God is calling us to let go of everything else for the sake of knowing him and holding on to him. Isn't that awesome that God is calling us into that? But we are like, we are like vessels. We are like cups. So if you have a, a cup of oil and you want to get a little bit of water into that cup, but it's full of oil, how are you going to get water into that cup? You've got to empty it, right? You've got to empty, you've got to pour out something to get that cup in or to get that water into the cup. And in the same way, God is going to call you to pour some things out of you so that you can receive more of him. In Philippians 2 that we're going to get to in just a little bit, it says this, that Jesus emptied himself of himself. Isn't that wild? He emptied himself of himself. Now, we can't do that on our own. And so a big theme of surrender is that you can only surrender with the help of God. Absolute surrender is something that you absolutely cannot do on your own. You need to do it with the Lord's help. You can ask the Lord and you need to will it. In other words, you need to say, Lord, I am willing. But you also need to say, and Lord, that's all I've got is a will to do this. Because after that, 
There's going to be things that I'm going to hold on to. There's going to be things that I don't want to let go of. There's going to be ways that I'm unwilling to invite you in, ways that I'm going to be unwilling to give you everything. And so as we talk about surrender, it's a spiritual process. It's not an alone process, but a with God process. So we're going to start this year in absolute surrender to God. So Jesus is our model for life and our model for surrender. And so we're going to look at Jesus' prayer in John 17 and see how he models surrender to us there. It says this in John 17. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that he, that the son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. So this prayer starts out, it's a prayer of surrender. Father, would you do this thing in my life? Would you glorify the Son as he has glorified you? You gave the Son authority. You're the giver of authority. And the Son has used that authority because he has authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all the Father has given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is giving us the formula for salvation in our lives it's to know him. And we talk about knowing Jesus. It's not like, oh, I know that Jesus cat. We hung out once over on 6th Street. He made everybody some bread and some fish, and it was delicious, right? Like, it's not just a little bit of an experience with Jesus. It's to be intimately acquainted with Jesus, to be intimately acquainted with the gospel, to understand that when we put our faith in him, that's how we have everlasting life, to see that he is the Savior and to trust him alone as the Savior. Wait, I skipped some. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence that the glory I, with the glory that I had before the... Ugh, I'm skipping words, guys. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. So again, it's this humble request. Father, will you glorify me? I glorified you by doing what? By completing the work that you gave for me to do. You gave me work and I did it. That's surrender. That's submission to the Father. I have revealed your name to the people. You gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. God, I showed you to them. I showed your name to them. Not my own name, your name, Father. You gave them to me and I did your work in them. They have also done this. They've kept your word. Who's the center of all of this? The Father. Over and over again, the Father, his desire, his will. They, now they know that everything you have given, that I, I've got to read this from here, not there. We're going to go verse 7. Thank you. Now they know that everything you have given is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and I have, and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. And then he says this in verse 13. He says, Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. Okay, so this prayer that's modeling surrender. 
Jesus spoke intentionally. There's not really any other place in the gospel where there's a recorded prayer of Jesus. Remember the moment when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray like you pray. Jesus didn't say, well, this is what I said in my last prayer to the Lord. Instead, he gave a pattern of prayer, a pattern of first surrender, heavenly Father. May your name be great. Hallowed be your name. May your will be completed on earth as it is in heaven. Your will above our will, Father. Your purposes above our purpose. Jesus is modeling surrender in prayer life towards the Father. And then here in the one prayer that we have written, this close relationship with he and the Father, there is this absolute surrender that is modeled to us. And then he says in verse 13, the reason I have modeled surrender to you is for your joy. It's for your joy. Now this is very challenging for us. We need to recognize that when we talk about surrender, this is not a cultural concept that we embrace at all. We train into our children that they are going to win. We try to tell them to be good sports even when they don't win, but everybody has in their hearts a desire for personal victory, to be greater, to have other people say, that is a team of winners right there. When we have good days, we say that we are crushing it. I am killing it. I am winning today. When is the last time somebody put on Facebook, I lost it all today for the glory of God, amen. When is the last time you felt like a loser and then you said, and thank you, Jesus, that I am miserable in this moment because your joy is going to be so great when I see you in this. We do not embrace surrender. Our nation was founded on a lack of surrender. We will have no king over us. This is a sign that you could find in taverns, in churches, in homes in the 18th century on the eastern seaboard. And that acclaim, that shout, continues to reign in our hearts. We will have no king over us. And so Jesus gives us this massive contrast. You don't have to have a king, but you also don't have to have joy. Isn't it amazing? We're at the beginning of a new year, and all of us in our hearts are wondering what is in that new year. And I don't know. And I don't know what goals you have. And I don't want to discourage you from those goals because maybe some of those goals are from the Lord. And maybe in those goals, even if they're not, you will find the Lord. And so pursue the things that God has for you this year. But often at the beginning of the year, we think about tangible goals, things that we want to achieve, things that we want to gain. But what if God's goal for you is just more joy and surrender? Just more knowing him and knowing the everlasting life that he has planned for you knowing life abundantly. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But that abundance is never found in a shopping list. You can't stick it in your cart in Costco and it's not because your cart's not big enough. It's because joy is not found in stuff. Joy is found in knowing the Lord. And Jesus is telling us that knowing the Lord starts with surrender. So let's build this truth a little bit so that you don't just take my words for it, but so that God's word is planted in your heart today. Jesus is our model for life. I, I just want to remind us of that because 
Right now, we all have models for life and success. Everybody says, I need a mentor. I need a role model. Man, I hope your mentor is Jesus. I hope your role model is Jesus. He's the best one I can offer you. He's the best one the Bible has. The best human mentor in the Bible, Paul, says, follow me as I follow Jesus because he's ultimately the pattern that is for us. In Romans 8, 29, it says this, for those he foreknew, he also, be, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It means that God chose you. He saw you. He knew you. And he chose in advance a destination for your life. And that destination is similarity to the Son, to be someone who represents Jesus to others in this world and in the eternity to come. Because he didn't just want one person like Jesus. He wants heaven filled with billions of people like Jesus. And that's you, hopefully, if you put your faith in Jesus God says that Jesus is the model, and I am making you to be like Jesus. Now, that's really good news, because I've tried to make myself like Jesus often, and maybe you have done this, and you work so hard, and at the end of the day, you go, I was like the opposite of Jesus today. My pride was there. I was condemning people. I was telling them when to stand up and sit down in church. I don't even know what came over me. I love you, Kelly. I'm just kidding. Your joke was just fine. It was only a joke. I know this. But when we try to do this in our flesh, it doesn't work. It only works when we surrender to God because he is the one, it says in Philippians, that's going to will and to work out his good pleasure in us. And this is his good pleasure, that we would be like Jesus. Again, I want to pause and recognize that culturally, this seems backwards because we all believe in the gospel of Mickey Mouse. (laughs) Just be yourself. How often have you heard, just be yourself? That's what you really need to be, is just be you. And then Jesus is like, I created you, and I want you to be like Jesus, right? God has greater plans for you than you can imagine for yourself. And those plans happen to have to do with becoming more and more like Jesus. Maybe it's time just in this moment to say, Lord, we have been making ourselves in our own image We've been turning our hearts and our minds to becoming something that is nothing like what you want for us. We think that it's important to be rich and comfortable and successful and wealthy and healthy. And that has nothing to do with Jesus because Jesus was poor and unsuccessful and he died on a cross, a wounded warrior. And so Lord, if you want that for me, I'm here seeking your will today. Maybe we need to surrender ourselves to become more like Jesus and recognize that he is the model that is for us. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, since we have such a cloud of witnesses around us, right? So this is all the people who have gone before, who've been faithful to the Lord. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, it's saying we are chasing after Jesus in the path that Jesus made for us. He wrote our faith, he blazed the trail, he perfected our faith, and that's what we are chasing after. He is your goal. The author of Hebrews is exhorting us, let's throw aside everything else, everything that's going to pull you into another path, every idea that's not of him, let's cast those things off, and let's run after him with freedom and with exuberance. With exuberance. Jesus is our model, then, 
for surrender. He is showing us surrender. Philippians 2 says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Now this is actually a song, we think, that was sung in the first century church, which is pretty amazing. I wish I knew some of these songs because they're kind of sprinkled through the New Testament, and I don't know the tune, and it doesn't rhyme in English, but I'm just so curious how it would have been in the Greek. It says, Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality of, with God as something to be exploited. In other words, he didn't consider it as something to be used for his own advantage. Man, we are really good at looking for our own advantage, aren't we? You know, I must admit that when I go out to eat and they mess up my dish, I think, I'd like to press this for a discount on my bill. When I'm a place where I can get an advantage, I want to seek that. I want to say, this is what God has for me in this moment, because it's good for me. But Jesus didn't say that. He saw the advantage he had being God himself in the flesh, and he didn't use it for himself. He left heaven where everything was about exalting him and glorifying him. And every time he was able to or had an opportunity to exalt himself or glorify himself on earth, he either kind of ninjaed out of the situation so that it couldn't happen, or he made himself a servant and pointed to the Father. He never made it about himself. He didn't use his life for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. In other words, Jesus is this perfect example of surrender. And he brings us to this synonym for surrender, which our hearts love even more, submission. Obedience requires submission. Now, we've talked about it before, but submission is not a good word in our culture. Some dictionaries, they do these amazing things where they track word usage over the last couple centuries. And at the end of the 19th century, the the word submission was used often in our culture. It was an everyday household term. But right now in our culture, it's used 50% less than it used to be. And I'm guessing that when it's used, it's not used in a popular way. Submission is not a value that we have in our nation. Subservience is not a value that we have in our country right now. And it's not something that is born natively within our hearts. This humble submission that Jesus models for us. He emptied himself of himself. And he took on the form of a servant. What form do you take on in your life every day? Who are you and what is your important identity? How is it that you want to be seen? Do you see yourself as a servant of others? Do you recognize that first and foremost, you are a servant of the Lord? You know, we all like to go out to eat in our culture. And when I think about going out to eat, one of the biggest reasons is I'm tired and I want somebody to serve me. I want them to bring me the dinner that I asked for in the way that I asked for it. I want them to clean up the table and I want them to do the dishes and I will gladly pay them to be my servant. The reality is is that all of us really enjoy being served. But the bigger reality is that God is calling us to be a servant. You know, we have uh, some family visiting us this week, and and, uh, my friend Eric, who's who's there, uh, not to embarrass him, but he says that every time he doesn't cook, he's going to do the dishes. And he does this at my house, the audacity. He does this at my house. And then you know what my wife expects of me? I got to be in there with him. And I can't just be watching him and patting on the back. I need to be helping too. 
It's so good for my heart. It's so good to see his humility. It's so good to see that he chose long ago that I will serve in this way. And I can see markers in his character where choosing to be a servant in this one way regularly created a servant's heart in him because he automatically decides this is my job is to serve in this way and he takes joy in it and you know what's amazing is he was telling me that his son started doing this with him at a young age and his son enjoys serving this same way too and that's how i know that mental illness runs in this family (laughs) what sort of crazy person would choose to show their own family how to be less than they think they deserve to be because that's really what it's all about isn't it who do you think you deserve to be Jesus deserved to be God because he was God, but he chose to be a servant because he wanted to show you the way and because he wanted to offer you a way of salvation. Next, I want you to see that absolute surrender restores us to the place that we were meant to be. So one of the big things in the Bible is we see creation, the account of creation. In creation, everything was good. And God called the place, the garden, the valley that he put Adam and Eve Eden, which means paradise. And over and over again, he said that it is tov, which means good. And then at the end, he said it is tov tov, which is like super good, right? It's like extra strength good. And then he placed Adam and Eve in this valley of paradise that was the best that could be created. I just want to emphasize this. It was the best that could be created. It was you looking your best on a beach in Tahiti with the Lord, right? Like it was amazing. It was wonderful and it was perfect. And that's where we were meant to live. But part of this living was surrender to God. In Genesis 2.15, it says, And the Lord God took man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Who is the active person in this verse? The Lord. And who is the recipient in this verse? Man and woman, Adam and Eve. And what is happening with man and woman? He is taking them, and he is placing them, and he is giving orders. And you know what the Bible says about this? This is very good that they are in God's hand in this way. And this is God's best for them. This is also God's best for you. Do you trust yourselves to be in God's hand? Or do you need to put your own hand on your life and direct yourself? Do you submit to the Lord's will? Or do you feel like you need to make your own way? When you have trouble, are you your hero? Or is somebody else on earth your hero? Or is the Lord your hero? This is what is your design, is to let God be these things for you. It repeats it in Genesis 1. It says, God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God is giving them authority, but he is the giver of the authority. Do you remember Jesus' prayer? I have authority over the earth, the authority that you gave me, Father. He didn't say the authority that I claimed, the authority that I grabbed hold of, the authority that I pursued and won, and it's the authority you gave me. Jesus is modeling. Let's go back to the way it's supposed to be, the place that it was in Genesis. I love it when I hear Americans say, I just wish we could go back to when it was better in America. And I'm like, you're not going back far enough, man. 
You're not going back far enough because it wasn't that great then. It was just great for you. There was a time when it was great for all people. Granted, there were only two. But a 100% satisfaction rate is really amazing even with two, right? It was good then. It was really good. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the earth, the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. I love that part of that verse. It's the way that it was. Any Star Trek fans out there? I'm going to date myself, unless if you're a rerun watcher. Remember what Captain Picard would say when he gave an order? Make it so. And it was so. That's a big deal. There's a lot of things that I say that it should be that way. No. It's not that way. I started to learn to say, like, maybe we could just... What if we try... Because my authority is the authority of idea and suggestion. Because I'm not God. And the better I know that, the better my life is. He is the one that makes it so in my life. I am the one that does the sewing. He does the designing. Absolute surrender resists the enemy and removes us from cooperating with him. This is so key. You know, I have seen believers, they get into spiritual warfare, and I, and I love it, but, but some of them, they, they get like this puffed up thing. But the problem is, is that that puffed up thing is like their own strength. And I, I see it happening, and I, I don't mean to walk in condemnation, because I, I know that sometimes people do this, and they're not in their own strength. They're in the strength of the Lord. Just like you could see me get really big in a sermon and excited, and, and there are times where that's my own passion. That's worthless. And there are times when it's God's passion. That is eternally valuable. And so the same thing can be happening, and it's all about the motive inside, this motive of absolute surrender. And when we do this, this absolute surrender resists the enemy, Satan, and removes us from cooperating with him. Now James wrote to the early church, and the church that he was writing in in Jerusalem, they were under a lot of pressures from the outside world. There was political upheaval, there was persecution, there was rumor of persecution, there was poverty, there was famine. It was not an easy time for the church. It was still God's will for that church, though. And in the midst of that, they started to have corruption within the body. And by corruption, I don't mean the way we think about corruption. I mean sin in the body. There was quarreling. There was fighting. There was divisions. There was pride. There was gossip. There was malice. There was all sorts of wickedness in the church. And in chapter 4, he starts talking about this. I love it. He's just a pastor who gets after it. Hey, y'all are quarreling. You're fighting, you're grumbling, you're gossiping. Why do you think that's happening? Why do you think that's happening? And he says, it's because of your pride. It's because you're not surrendered to God. You're surrendered to yourself. You're surrendered to some other force. Pride is from Satan. Surrender is from the Lord. The heart of Satan is pride. If you read his story in Isaiah, it says, I will ascend to the mount of the Lord. I will stand in the assembly. I will sit in the seat of God Most High. He is full of I in front of the great I Am. When we are tempted to pride, when we pursue pride, this is from the enemy. And the way to resist that is to stand with the Lord against your own pride. It's kind of hard to do. It says, but he gives greater grace. 
So when you're feeling proud, God gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. Now, this quotes the Old Testament, if you know that. What's crazy is it quotes the Old Testament in multiple places. It's in Proverbs 3. It's in Isaiah. It's before that as well. I can't remember the third one. And then Jesus himself repeats this in one of his messages to his disciples. This is a huge principle of who God is. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Surrender to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you do that? You surrender to God. You resist the devil when you surrender yourself to God. His plans for you, his desire for you, his word for you, his truth for you. That is the place of your strength, is in recognizing your weakness and submitting to him as you are able. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wow. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do you do that? You do that by surrender. Now there's this piece, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Boy, that sounds like 20th century hellfire and brimstone preaching, doesn't it? It just sounds like somebody who's looking down at you and they've got the Bible in their hand and cleanse your hands, you terrible sinners. That's not the goal at all. That's not the heart at all of this. It's saying there is pride in you. Take pride off of your hands. That means take it out of your actions. These are your means of making life. And you can make friends or you can make war. You can make peace or you can make enemies, right? God gave you your hands to do his work. And James is saying, let go of your pride. Let pride not be in your hands. Let pride not be in your heart. But instead, draw near to God. Get these things out of you that are no good for you. If you went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, you seem perfectly healthy, but there's strong evidence that you have some parasites living in your body. Would you go home and be like, doctor says I'm perfectly healthy. No, you'd be like, there's like gross stuff living in me that's like poisoning me. What do we got to do, doc? Like, do you got to cut me open? Is this going to be like a scene from aliens? Is there a pill I can take? Like, what do I need to do to get this parasite out of me? You'd be freaking out inside. You'd be like, parasites? Where did I get that? I'm a clean person. You'd feel shame and you'd, you'd want this done with. And when this verse says this, that's what God is saying. He's saying the pride in your life is like a parasite. And you think it's giving you life, but it's sucking the life out of you. It's poisoning you over time. So cleanse your hearts. Clean your hands so that you can resist the enemy. Your strength in spiritual warfare requires submitting to God. Think in Ephesians. What is your job in Ephesians in spiritual warfare? To do what? To stand. To put on the full armor of God. To be strengthened in his strength. And then to just stand there. He doesn't say, and pump yourself up and chase that enemy down. Go do it, man. No, he just says, stand there. Submit to my orders and stand firm. Hold in that place of submission. That is where your power is, brother. That is where your power is, sister. Next, I want you to understand this. Absolute surrender is the start of revival. Yeah, I've heard revival thrown around in the church and I love it. And part of me doesn't love it. 
Because sometimes this call for revival means, I really don't like where we are right now, but instead of being honest about that and asking the Lord to do what I think he wants us to do, we're just voicing dissatisfaction. And so sometimes I hear call for revival, and it really means, can I have something different, Lord? I'm rather tired of mashed potatoes today. Can we have rice instead? But the heart of revival is actually, in its purest form, a heart for the Lord. But revival starts with surrendered hearts. The truth is, revival starts with just one surrendered heart. There's this ministry called Revive Our Hearts Ministry. Sorry, guys, it's a ladies' ministry. There's some great blog posts there that you can learn from, though, if you're humble of heart. And they say this, Revival is a renewed relationship with Jesus that revolutionizes relationships with others. In other words, they're recognizing this truth. Revival starts with one heart. And you know what's amazing is if you study revivals, it often starts that way. One heart perfectly yielded to God in a way that the glory of God is revealed through that person because they're not about themselves. They're all about him. That prayer of Jesus where he said, I have glorified you. I want to glorify you. That's the prayer that's in their heart. God's name above my name. God's will above my will. God's dreams above my will. My dreams. God's desires above my desires. God's hope above my hope. God above everything I am. And they live that. And something ignites in them and it becomes transferable. And they're able to impart that to others. And it sweeps revival across a family. Praise the Lord. A small group, praise the Lord. A church, praise the Lord. A college campus, praise the Lord. A whole region, praise the Lord. Revival starts with one, though. See, often we want the big fire, but we're not willing to be the match. We want the huge result, but we're not willing to be part of the process. But revival starts with surrender, with absolute surrender in our lives. Do you want a personal revival for you today? Do you want God to do a new thing in your heart? Do you want to know the depth of joy that the Lord has for you? Jesus says that this model of surrender is that his complete joy might be in you. Wow. Can you imagine that? God's complete joy in you. I, I like going to Costco on sample day. Anybody else? I love it. As I've gotten older, most of the samples, I'm like, that's okay. But every once in a while, there's a sample, and I'm like, I want all of that in here. I will take everything that's in the cooler home today, please, right? Because it's just so good. Have you felt the joy of the Lord? Have you experienced his divine pleasure? Have you been enraptured in him in a moment of surrender, of worship, of learning, of seeing creation, of seeing him work through your hand and watching him work in somebody else's hand? Jesus is saying the goodness of that moment can be known by you in completion. Isn't that wild? And it starts in this place of surrender. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says this. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place be? In other words, he's saying to his people, your idea of me is way too small. I'm not going to live in your boxes. I'm not going to be limited by your ideas and your limited thinking. My hand made all these things. And so they all came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. 
I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Wow. God's people are always like, let's do a great thing for God. Let's get something done awesome for God. And God says, I accomplish all things. I built all things. You build with the stuff I made. But let me tell you what I'm really interested in. You. You could be my home. You could be the great work that is accomplished for me. And this is what it looks like. Humility. Surrender. Submission. Humble obedience. Awe and reverence. Man, those words taste good, don't they? I mean, when you're in the Spirit, aren't those words just fruit and food for your soul? Can't you just feel them dripping with the goodness of God? I want that humility, please, Lord. I want that submission, please, God. I want to be surrendered to you, Lord. I want to tremble at your word and not be greedy for my own thoughts. Can't you sense that within yourself? through the Spirit in you? Won't you say yes to God in that way today in your life? Because when you do, what he says is, your heart will be my home. Your life will be my throne. I will reside with you, and I will abide with you. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul is writing to the church after correction, and he says, I now rejoice. Not because you were grieved. They were grieved because of the hard words he wrote to them about accepting their own sinfulness. But because your grief led to repentance, that trembling at his word, that humility, that submission, you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret but worldly grief produces death. I mean, I've experienced both of those griefs in my life as a believer. Have you? And I gotta tell you, when my grief turns me to Jesus and I'm humble before him and I say, Lord, I am sorry that my heart wanted things that were not of you and I said yes. When I humbly repent to him, he restores me and he brings life and he washes away shame and regret and he makes my life new in him. And then I'm so glad that I experienced that grief. But there are days where my sin, and I've carried it around in my own pockets, and I've rubbed it like a very familiar and valuable silver dollar, and I think, what am I going to do with my sin? How am I going to get rid of this? And, And then eventually the weight of grief overwhelms me because I can't fix it on my own. God is calling you today, if you will, into humble repentance that seeks after Him, into godly sorrow, I wish there was another way. I worked over this sermon, not so much physically, but spiritually, because this place of asking you to be willing to grab a hold of godly grief, it's not a fun place. It's the beginning of the year, and I want to be able to say, God's got awesome plans for you, and they're always going to feel amazing. And then God says, but you get to say, God's got awesome plans for you, and it's going to start hard. Because you have to downshift from self into surrender. And as you do that, there's always, always sorrow. But let it be godly sorrow. Because that godly sorrow has massive results. Look what he writes next. 
For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God's will, has produced in you. What desire to clear yourselves. What indignation over your sin. What fear of the Lord. What deep longing. What zeal. What righteousness and justice has God created in you because of your godly sorrow. It's just a little step, but it's a Lulu. Love you, Lulu. It's a big one. It's a great step, even if it's small, but it's a step down. Are you willing to humble yourself before God so that you know his complete joy? Let's start this year in absolute surrender, in a place where we say, Lord, not my will, but your will. Not your desires, my desires. But it has to start in your heart. I can't have revival for you. Your neighbor can't have revival for you. Your husband, your brother, your sister, the worship team, they can't have revival for you. You have to choose revival for you. You have to start in this place of absolute surrender. If you're willing for that today, would you just, as we close our eyes, just put your hand up, or if you're able, you could take a knee, but just humble yourself before the Lord in a place of dependence as we pray. Father, you are calling us to absolute surrender. You're calling us to a place of humility before you. We're willing to grieve our sin. We're willing to recognize what is true about what is inside and about what you want to do in us. And so, Lord, today we surrender ourselves to you as we are able. And, Lord, we know that we can't accomplish this surrender, that we can't start revival, that we can't do the thing that you're calling us to do. And so, Father, we surrender to your power working this thing in us. We surrender to our place in your world and in eternity. And we pray, God, that you would work your great work within us for your glory, not our own. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.